Creative Babble. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When I was 16 years old, like all children, I needed my mother and my father. I want you to understand one thing. All children need their mother and their father. There are no exceptions. All children need their mother and their father. This is Frank Abagnale's attempt to justify his criminal past. It's the same story that captured Steven Spielberg's heart. In the film, Abagnale's parents are forced to move out of their large family home and into a small New York City apartment. Why? Because Frank Sr., the dad, had tax trouble with the IRS. This was the beginning of the end for the Abagnale family. Later, Frank Jr. learns that his mother, Paulette, was having an affair with her father's friend. Poor 16-year-old Frank didn't know what to do, so he ran away from home. His plan was to make as much money as possible so that one day he could reunite his family. Of course, that's just the Hollywood version of the story. I'll let Frank Jr. explain what really happened. One day, a complete stranger, a judge, told me of the two people I loved most in the world. I had to choose one of them over the other. He gave me seconds to answer him. Instead, I turned and ran. I have no regrets. I would do it again tomorrow. In real life, Frank Jr. says that he ran out of the courtroom and into the streets of New York City. And unlike the movie, he claims he never saw his father again and would not see his mother until he turned 23. And I will tell you that there isn't a man or woman alive today who can look me in the face and tell me that they've experienced a divorce between their parents and that they're over it. You know, divorce isn't easy. I know because my parents got divorced too. And hey, you know what? I'm not perfect. I once stole the pack of gum from the drugstore. But it wasn't because my parents got a divorce. It's because I was a stupid punk. But somehow, despite the fact that my parents split up, I don't want to brag or anything, but for the most part, I managed to become a productive citizen. I've never written any bad checks or posed as a doctor to physically examine unsuspecting girls. Turned out all right. But how could I tell you it was glamorous? I cried myself to sleep till I was 19 years old. I always get amused by these articles of my exploits. I lived it. I used to think it was ironic that I could fool the world and I was believing I was a doctor to crawl into a bed in an apartment every morning and cry myself to sleep. Because no matter how much I fooled the world into believing I was an adult, I was just a kid. You know what? All this sounds like a bunch of excuses to me. On today's episode, we are going to look back at the Abagnale family tree. And what I found is pretty surprising. Like the fact that Frank Abagnale's older brother might be a much more sophisticated con artist. So stick around. You're going to want to hear this.
I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. According to his autobiography, Catch Me If You Can, which we just learned is a work of fiction, Frank Jr. says that his father was an avid fisherman. He traveled all over the world looking for the perfect fishing spot. Did he ever invite his wife to tag along? Hell no. These trips were for men. A wife's place is at home. Let me read you a passage from the newfound fairy tale of Frank Abagnale's life, Catch Me If You Can. Quote, My mother was a woman's liber before Gloria Steinem learned that her maiden fair was flammable. And one day, Dad came back from a marlin-chasing jaunt to find his home creel empty. Mom had packed up and moved herself, us three boys and sis, into a large apartment. We kids were somewhat mystified, but Mom quietly explained that she and Dad were no longer compatible and elected to live apart. Unquote. You know, the 1960s was the beginning of the divorce boom. During this time, a significant number of women rejected their predestined roles as housewives. Many women rolled up their sleeves and entered the workforce. They also managed to close the education gap. As a result, the divorce rate skyrocketed. And by the end of the 1960s, three out of every thousand Americans filed for divorce. And believe it or not, the rate back in the 60s was much higher than it is today. So it turns out Paulette Abagnale didn't cheat on her husband like it was suggested in the film. As far as we know, she simply wanted out of the relationship. But it seems like little Frank resented her for this. He never badmouths his mom in the book, but he sure didn't mind Spielberg bashing her in the movie. Abagnale has very kind things to say about his father. You know, I was a very gifted child. God gifted me with the greatest father that any little boy could ever ask to have. In life, there are lots of fathers, but there are very few daddies. It takes a very, very special man to be a daddy. They are far and few between. 
My father was a daddy. He loved his children more than he loved life itself. He was a daddy because he told his children every day of their life he loved them, not only physically, but verbally as well. What I remember growing up most in my house, there were four of us. Every night at bedtime, my father, six foot three, would walk around to each child's room, drop down on one knee, give you a kiss on the cheek, and give you a hug, and whisper in your ear, I love you, I love you very much. Same routine, night after night. He never missed a night. Some nights he came home late, you fell asleep, but you always woke up in the morning and somehow knew he had been there the night before. But very rarely in his speeches does he ever mention his mother Paulette. After all, according to him, it was Paulette who broke up the family. And it seems like Frank Abagnale could never really forgive her. In the movie Catch Me If You Can, Paulette was portrayed as an unfaithful wife who slept with her husband's friend unashamedly. On YouTube, you'll find comments like this, quote, All Frank wanted was his parents back together, and one day he finds out that his mother moved on and happy with a new child. Another YouTuber said, quote, She cheated her way to happiness. What a disgrace to motherhood, and such a selfish act. And another review says, One of the most scariest things a person could go through is realizing your mother does not care about you anymore. Unquote. And the last one I'm going to read to you is, quote, I don't know how that woman could just forget about her kid like that. Unquote. On the flip side, Frank Abagnale Sr. is portrayed as the victim. In both the book and the movie, he desperately wanted to get his family back together. Steven Spielberg would later write... The more I researched Frank's youth, the more I couldn't help but put his father in the film through the likes of Christopher Walken. As you know, Christopher Walken was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Frank Abagnale Sr. This was a very unusual role for Walken because he's typically cast as the villain, but not this time. Despite his flaws, Walken played Frank Sr. as the good guy in the film. Here's a clip from the Pan Am podcast. Is there anything you want to to point out the differences between your real life and this Hollywood blockbuster motion picture. You know, when I watched the movie, and I honestly have only seen the movie twice, when I watched the movie, you know, in real life, I had two brothers and a sister. He portrayed me as an only child. He says the film took other creative liberties. Frank Jr. acknowledges that his mother never remarried for another 20 years. He also conceded that he didn't escape from the airplane toilet. It was the hatch in the back of the plane. The only thing I never understood about the whole movie and always he would never answer this question for me. As I said, I really didn't understand how you portrayed my father because, you know, my father was probably the most honest man you ever wanted to meet. He was outraged by his father's portrayal. But not once during the interview did Frank Jr. mention how his mom was portrayed as a cheating spouse who abandoned her kids. If his mom was painted in such a negative light, don't you think he would be a little bit more upset about that? That's the thing. Audiences expect that if a movie is based on a true story, that producers and directors compress time, consolidate characters, and greatly exaggerate the real story. It's not meant to be a documentary. But that's not the case with Catch Me If You Can. Because according to Frank Jr., Steven Spielberg got it mostly right. Mr. Abagnale, perhaps I can bring you in just now. Um, 
How close is it then, this movie, to the real thing? And remember, we might not believe what you say. <laughs> uh, I personally felt that the movie was about 80% uh, accurate. There were minor details in the movie that Mr. Spielberg changed, but the essence of the story, me running away, uh, me posing as a pilot, the doctor, the lawyer, uh, the escape from the hotel room, all of the, the escape from the airplane with a slight little twist to it, but all of them based on actual things that I actually did. But other than that, I felt the film was uh, actually a lot more accurate than I thought it would be, and certainly a lot more serious than I thought it would be in the end. Frank Jr. also acknowledges that in the movie he was a single child, but in real life he had two brothers and a sister. The youngest brother was named Richard Abagnale, who suffered from alcoholism most of his life. He hit rock bottom at the age of 29. In 1982, Richard was involved in a high-speed chase after police witnessed him speeding past several red lights, forcing oncoming traffic off the road, and at one point he was driving up the sidewalk. He was charged with driving while intoxicated, reckless driving, and driving with a suspended license. Then, in a totally separate incident that same year, Richard got back behind the wheel, but this time he was driving at night, and when he veered off onto oncoming traffic, he struck a car head-on. Paramedics found the passengers of the other vehicle unconscious. One of those passengers was an assistant county attorney. Richard Abagnale ended up serving six months in prison and several years probation. You know, Richard never really had ambition like his other two brothers. He eventually had a child who he left for his mother to raise, and at one point he lived in a church basement where he worked as a landscaper. Richard Abagnale ended up dying in 2006 from liver cirrhosis. Frank Abagnale also had a sister named Linda. There's not a whole lot we know about her, but what we do know is that she is a person with a learning disability. It's reported that his sister wasn't even raised in the Abagnale household. She's still alive and well and works as a volunteer at a hospital. And then there was Roy, the oldest sibling. What I remember vividly is my older brother moved in my room as he got older. He eventually joined the Marines. He was 6'4". Yet when he came home on leave, my father would walk around to his bed, hug him, kiss him, whisper right into his ear, I love you. You were never too old. But you know what? Not everything was rosy at the Abagnale household. It's been said that Roy Abagnale couldn't get out of that house fast enough. He enlisted in the Marines, assumed a new name, and faked his age. It seems like being an imposter runs really deep in this family. When we return, we're going to take a deep dive into Roy Abagnale's life. It turns out that he is a much more gifted con artist than his younger brother Frank. That's after the break. In the film, there's a scene where young Frank shows up at his mother's new house on Christmas Eve. It's snowing, and Nat King Cole's Christmas song is playing in the background. Young Frank peers through the window as he witnesses his mom with her new husband and a small little girl. It looks like Frankie, as his mom used to call him, was replaced. Her life looked perfect. But unlike the movie, Paulette, Frank's mom, didn't remarry until 18 years after her divorce. She didn't run off with Frank Sr.'s best friend or any other slut-shaming event. Ironically, it was Frank Sr. who got remarried three months after the divorce was finalized. Three months! Gee, I wonder who really broke up the marriage. <laughs> 
You do the math. And remember that story that Frank Jr. likes to tell? I remember walking up the steps of the stone building that afternoon that said family court, not really understanding what that meant. But when I arrived, court was already in session. When I was ushered into the back of the immense courtroom, my parents were standing before the judge. The judge looked up and saw me at the back of the room. A moment later, he looked up and told me that my parents were getting a divorce. In shock, I looked at the judge and looked at my parents. He went on to explain that under New York state law, because I was 16 years of age in a court of law before a presiding judge, I had to tell the court which parent I wanted to live with. I started to cry, so I turned and ran out of the courtroom. Judge called for a 10-minute recess, but by the time my parents got outside, I was nowhere to be found. He's probably told this story a million times. You know, I was a 16-year-old boy who ran away from home and ended up on the streets of New York City. And again. I ran away from home at 16 when my parents got a divorce, ended up on the streets of New York. He ran out of courtrooms and ended up on the streets of New York City. Such a vivid description. I could almost picture it frame by frame. Except this story is physically impossible because the court records show that Paulette and Frank Sr. got a divorce in Mexico, not New York City. Why would anyone make up such a stupid story like this? Well, because he can. You might be asking yourself, why a Mexican divorce? You see, back in the day, it was a lot quicker and easier to get a divorce down in Mexico. You didn't even have to be there. Simply send the lawyer to represent you and bada bing, bada boom, divorced. The point that I'm trying to make is, why did Frank Jr. idolize his dad while feeling resentment towards his mom? Let's take a trip back in time to when Frank Abagnale was living with Paula Parks' family. Remember Paula Parks, the flight attendant who discovered Frank living with her parents? Well, it turns out Abagnale was robbing her family blind the entire time he was living with them. He was caught and then arrested for theft and forgery. While sitting in a Baton Rouge jail, Abagnale's mother and father both wrote letters to Reverend Underwood, a local preacher who took Frank Jr. under his wing. Paula Park kept these letters. Would you be interested in any of these letters from Frank? Why are these letters so important? Well, because we're hearing from Paula and Frank Sr. for the first time, in their own words. What is their opinion on their troubled child? Paula wrote the preacher, quote, Dear Reverend Underwood, I am Frankie Abagnale's mother, and I want to thank you very much for the kindness and interest you have shown my son. He is in dire need of help. I mean psychiatric help, as he seems to have compulsions to write checks and is unable to stop. She adds, I've tried to get him help, but was not successful, and it's just getting worse. In a separate letter, Frank Sr. wrote, Dear Reverend Underwood, If remorse and guilty conscience of a father could somehow undo the sins of his son, I would gladly submit to the punishment I deserve. Neglect and indifference to the problem of my son in his early youth are my sins. Frank Jr. has been emotionally disturbed since the age of 10 and should have received consultant psychiatric treatment. He lives in a world of grandeur, trying, I believe, to emulate his father, who, like him, believed that the world owed him a grand living without the effort or discipline needed to achieve it. My son is mentally sick and desperately needs psychiatric treatment. Unquote. Ouch. But of course, Frank Jr. will never mention any of this on stage. 
he doesn't just suffer from delusions of grandeur. He also suffers from extreme memory loss. My mother never saw me again for seven years until I was a young adult. My father, unfortunately, never laid eyes on me again. Frank Jr. insists that he never saw or spoke to his father after he ran away from home at 16. But this is another lie, because at the age of 17, a year after he supposedly ran away from home, Frank Jr. stole the car in California, and guess who flew all the way from New York City to bail him out? That's right, Frank Sr., the man he says he never saw again. While I was sitting in that French prison, my father climbing the subway, 55, very physical, athletic man, as he did every morning, tripped on a step. When he reached back to grab the rail, he missed it. His head hit it. When he landed at the bottom of the step, he was dead. I didn't know he was dead. I was not there to see him placed in the ground. And most of all, I never got to tell him how much I loved him. That's my biggest regret of all. Most of that actually is true. Frank Sr. did have a fatal fall down the subway stairs. But he didn't die on the spot. And Frank Jr. wasn't sitting in a French prison waiting in his own feces. Jr. was actually at a federal correctional institute in Petersburg, Virginia, serving time for forging the 10 Pan Am payroll checks. Again, why would he embellish his father's death in order to make himself sound cool? It's just weird, dude. When we return from the break, we're going to hear from Frank Abagnale's niece. What she told me reveals a much more complex family tree. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Meet Heather. I have no connection to Frank. We're not. We're not friends. We're not. <laughs> we're not anything. I mean, he's my uncle, but right. I have like no connection to him. You don't. So you don't I get don't together care. for Thanksgiving. Nope. 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 As you probably figured out, Heather's father was Frank Abagnale's older brother, Roy. Heather grew up with her grandmother, Paulette. I wonder what she thinks about the way Paulette was characterized in the movie and the book. So my grandma actually sued DreamWorks and won as well. They settled out of court, but she was very upset with how she was portrayed in the movie. It was not close to reality. I, I did not know yeah. that. that. That's interesting. Yep, yep. I can't verify this claim because most lawsuits settled out of court are not public record. But that doesn't matter because it seems like Paulette didn't appreciate being villainized by Hollywood. Did you know that it was all... A bunch of lies? No, not until the book. Like, I knew that there was, like, untruths in the movie because my grandma was always mad about it. But, um, no, I just figured he had this wild story. I had no idea that not only was it a crazy story, but it was even crazier because it was mostly untrue. And it's really just about promotion. Frank always had like a weird thing with his mom. She's a great woman. I knew her growing up and she was wonderful. Like one of my favorite relatives ever. 
I actually named my daughter after her. Oh, really? Yeah. No, it's it's strange how different. And I don't know if that's just Frank really believes that or if he has. He's just always idolized his dad. But his dad, um, my my dad, really could not, not stand his father. The way Heather puts it, Frank Jr. admired his father. You can sense it in the speeches throughout the decades, but he barely mentions his mother at all. On the flip side, Roy, the oldest son, hated his father and loved his mother. I didn't know my grandpa at all, but I, from what my dad has told me, he was an abusive alcoholic and he was really, uh, he traumatized them pretty severely. I think that Frank is probably antisocial and he's probably antisocial from growing up with trauma. And he d- just can't accept that his abuser was bad. So he's just gone the other way and decided that he's going to idolize him instead, which a lot of trauma survivors do. It's yeah. not that uncommon. My dad went the opposite way. He just like separated from his father and he hated his father and he didn't want anything to do with him. So stories that my dad has told is that like he locked my grandma in like the closet for extended amounts of time. I know my dad had issues, not issues with sexuality, but, you know, kind of struggled because his first sexual encounter was at the age of 12. His father made him have sex with a prostitute and like in front of him. So he was pretty damaged from that experience. Oh my God. Yeah, he just sounded like a rotten person. I don't, it's so weird, like the cognitive disconnect that Frank could think that like this is a great man because what I've heard, he sounds pretty awful. Let's just pause here and just think about what Heather just said. Frank Sr., the man played by Christopher Walken in the movie, forced his teenage son to have sex with a prostitute because he didn't think he was manly enough. Hmm. The two Abagnale brothers didn't see eye to eye when it came to their parents and didn't really talk much later in life. But despite all that, their bond was undeniably strong. So my dad had a a kind of a strange relationship with Frank. And then when he passed away, what was interesting is he didn't have, he wanted to die at home. He got multiple myeloma and it was pretty bad at the end. And we needed a lot of money to be able to to do that because we needed around the clock care. And it was interesting because when my dad was just very sick and he knew that he wanted to go home and there wasn't really any way to logistically make it happen, he was like, call my brother, which I thought was so strange because they hadn't spoken in so long. But yeah, I have a resentment against Frank because he did end up paying for it, but they were really just like calling. His wife was calling my dad's wife going, well, how much do you think this is going to be? And how long do you think he's going to, you know, and I was like, ew. (laughs) And it ended up being like, maybe two weeks, if if that, maybe like 10 days. So it wasn't like this went on and on and on, but they were like stressing about it. And I was like, how gross is that, right? I know, because we're grieving and we're trying to take care of them. And I took off work and flew back to New York and my dad and I were very close. Um, And it was just, I just don't like that. I just, I know that they have another brother, Rick, who also passed away. He had a lot of problems with addiction. And I remember that Frank gave him a Rolex at one point and uh, then found out how much money it was really worth and like took it back. Oh my God, really? That was so bad. Yeah, like just really bad. And and remind Gross. me when your father passed away. Was it recently? 
he passed away. No, it was like, I think six years now. Six years ago, Frank Abagnale is living in this multi-million dollar island home in South Carolina. He's booking $20,000 to $30,000 per keynote speech. And here he is, like, it's so, it seems so gross that his brother is in his deathbed and he's, he's asking like, oh, well, how much is this going to be? And he's putting up some resistance. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Exactly. But actually it was mostly his wife. He, he said, okay. And then she was the one. So I don't know if he like says those things, but doesn't right. say them and, and lets her be the bad guy or yeah. if she really is the bad guy. And he's just kind of passive and lets her do what she does. But back to Roy, Heather's father. After he passed away, he left Heather with all these questions about his life. A lot of it didn't even really make sense. So she reached out to Alan Logan and me to help her put the pieces back together. So I don't even 100% know what my dad's real name is, honestly. Because when we would go to my grandma's as a kid, my grandma would call him Roy. So I feel like his name is Roy because that's what his mom calls him. And I doubt she would call him by a different name. But he told me his name was Jean-Paul. But on his military documents, which I've seen, his name is Eugene. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't. And I've seen different combinations like Eugene Frank, Roy Eugene, Jean-Paul Roy. Yeah. According to a 1950 census, his birth name is most likely Roy Abagnale. There's no reason to believe that his parents would lie about their child's name. I feel like there's more to the story when it comes to my father. My father has always been a bit of an enigma to me. Definitely had like lots of secrets. My mom actually divorced him because she found out that the name that he gave her was actually not his name. And he's had several name changes throughout his life so I feel like my dad is this is total speculation so don't take this as fact but I do feel like my dad might have done some of the things that my uncle took credit for or they have some sort of strange connection in the criminal realm that my dad would never disclose to me in other words Frank Abagnale is just a cheap copycat wannabe while his older brother Roy may actually be the better con artist. Do you know anything about your father and Frank ever exchanging identities? Do you know anything about that? I know you said that he, uh, Frank took his social once, but any other yeah. stories like yeah. that? Frank had his social, and one, at one point my dad was going by Frank. But not, but like maybe middle name Frank, one yeah. of his aliases. He was so secretive. He kind of did some shady dealings that I feel like he wouldn't have been able to do if he was not connected to that world. It turns out that her father was really just a stranger. There was more to his past than anyone around him even realized. Take, for instance, the time he got a hold of a stolen car. And my dad was like, I'll take it. It was a brand new car, but it was like 100% illegal. He was able to get it tagged and registered to him and like legit within like a matter of weeks. So I know that he has connections. Like not everybody could do that. I couldn't take a stolen car and make it legal. Like I, I wouldn't would even have know where idea. to start. Yeah. <laughs> like where would you but go? He, like, knew, you got to know people. Yeah, you got to know people for sure. He met my mom at a group home and got caught pretending to have a master's degree and was fired. 
he had used a fake diploma, but stories he told his wife and my, my mom are all false where he went to college, where he grew up, his name, everything is like skewed. So I just, I know that my dad like did some stuff and I just, I just have questions about like, what, what, what was he doing? There's like spaces of time that are missing when my dad left the military. We're going to do our best to look into this time period. Heather suspects that maybe Frank Abagnale and her father were in cahoots. I have like the feeling that my dad probably, if he didn't do all of those things, he was at least in on it. I know that he, that Frank used my dad's social security number and my dad was really mad about that. But I just think there's more. I mean, you don't change your name that many times and lie about your past and do all that if you don't have something there, there, you know? Right, right. But all her suspicions came to a head after her father died. While reading Alan Logan's book, The Greatest Hoax, Heather came across a passage that she just couldn't put down. In fact, she read it over and over again. The reason why I reached out to Alan in the first place was there was this part of the book, I don't know where you, if you remember, it was like two sentences, but it really screwed me up, where it said um, that somebody, I knew it was my dad, I just knew, I just he didn't mention my dad by name, but I just knew that that's who he was talking about. It was a 1968 newspaper clipping from the Ukiah Daily Journal in California about a man named Jean Francis Avignale. Eerily similar name as her father, Jean Paul Avignale. Could this be Heather's father, Roy? The paper mentioned that he's from Larchmont, New York. That's where his mother, Paulette, lived in 1968. Who else could it be? It couldn't be Frank Avignale Jr. because he actually had a solid alibi. He was sitting in prison in Comstock, New York. So it had to have been Jean-Paul Abagnale, a.k.a. Roy. The headline read, A seven-year-old girl found with therapists, in quotes. The article says that Roy Abagnale was charged with credit card fraud and unlawful conversion of a vehicle, which is another way of saying he didn't return his rental car. The article states that at the time of his arrest, Abagnale was accompanied by a seven-year-old girl from Michigan. What was this 25-year-old man doing traveling with a 7-year-old girl from Michigan all the way to California? That's a 35-hour drive. Or did Roy Abagnale fly with a girl he abducted? The article doesn't explicitly mention how long the girl was missing. The girl's father said that Abagnale was a therapist and that he was supposed to take the child to New York, not California. And when asked why Abagnale was with a girl... Roy said that he was taking her to receive treatment for injuries received in a car accident. Took a girl to California and posed as a therapist, which seemed so creepy and weird and like out of sorts for my father. So I was trying to get more information yeah. and I'm like, what was that all about? And I, I have the article right in front of me. I read Heather the article. And Heather's father, Roy, actually did work as a therapist, despite the fact that he faked his degree and had no proper education in mental health. So that much is true. But the question is, did he ever live in Michigan, where he allegedly kidnapped the seven-year-old girl? And what, so there's a couple of things that I know that I've pieced together from stories that his wife has told me. And she said that he did work in like a psych hospital in Michigan. And there was a little girl that he was very attached to. And, and I guess she was like nonverbal, almost feral. She was like really, really 
sick. And I guess my dad was really good with her and was able to kind of bring her out of her shell. So I wonder if that's the same girl, but I have no idea why he would take her out of there, why he would um, take her to California when he was supposed to be taking her to New York. I'm a therapist. So I feel like you can't do it. Like, you just can't do that. What is, I, like, it almost gives me, like, creepy pedophile vibes, but my dad wasn't like that. So I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I just don't understand. It seems like Roy Abagnale also has a fascination with children. Let's be clear. We don't know if there was any sexually inappropriate things going on with him and that little girl or what his intentions were. This article doesn't even mention if he was charged with any kidnapping crimes. All we know is that the parents gave permission for Abigail to transport the girl from Michigan to New York, but instead he headed the opposite direction to California. Now, let me, let me tell you something that you may or may not know. Every time Frank Abagnale was released from prison or jail, he would go seek out children. So he would volunteer at children's camps. He would volunteer with mentally disabled children every time. It was like clockwork. He would get released. He would go seek children out. Also, Frank Abagnale is a notorious forger. He also pretends to be other people. I mean, like this article just reads like Frank Abagnale. Isn't that weird? Yeah, and that's super creepy, and I don't know what his deal is with kids and other than the fact that they're easy marks, maybe, but I don't I don't know. Like, it's super, it makes me feel, like, really, really uneasy. My dad, you know, I, I think he maybe got, was up to some stuff just with all, like, the stories that don't align that he's told, but he was not, he was not like that. I've never seen him be weird with kids. So I don't know. Heather says that throughout her life, she was always suspicious of her father. It's hard, like, doing this because I get more questions than answers. With Frank, like, he's, everything is out there. And now, you know, I don't think I, most of it is true. But he's the one who invited all of this scrutiny, right? He didn't have to share all of this with the world. He's like a shameless self-promoter. So that's what happens when you shamelessly self-promote. People are going to look at you and your history. My dad was much more like secretive Private, and under yeah. the radar, which makes me think he was just probably smarter. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't yeah. get caught for anything. He never, you know, had a record, but you know, he, he definitely had some stuff and it, it's just, I wish I knew more. And I hope that we could along the way kind of shed more light for you. Cause I recognize how frustrating that must be to, to, not know. And then the person that could give you the answers is not here to tell you, you know? Yeah. And when I, when I was really bothered by, I was really bothered by the seven-year-old girl thing, to be honest. And I, I reached out to Frank because I was like, I don't care. Just like, tell me what happened. Like, I just want to know. Um, and he, he just didn't respond. He didn't respond <laughs> at all? He, no. he, nothing? Yeah. No. No, nothing. I don't think he wants anything to do with me because he knows, um, you know, I have questions that he doesn't really want to answer. If you find anything that you think, especially, yeah. like, I don't really care about Frank, to be honest, but I really care about my Your, dad yeah, and yeah. his story and yeah. what, what is maybe missing because I would like to know what the whole deal is with that little girl because well, that's, that's a little disturbing. I know, it really is. You can't is. take a child. No. It's, it's very disturbing, yeah. Let's see what we could dig up on Roy Abagnale. That's next after the break. 
After my call with Heather, Alan Logan and I hit the ground running to see what we could dig up on Roy Abagnale. Heather's father goes by many different aliases throughout his life, so in order to eliminate confusion, we'll refer to him by his birth name, Roy Abagnale. Like mentioned previously in the episode, her father enlisted in the Marines, but he didn't use his legal name Roy Abagnale. Instead, in 1961, he signed up as Eugene F. Abagnale. He presumably changed his name to disguise the fact that he was only 16 years old. We found an old military article which shows that Roy Abagnale was a Marine serving on the U.S. Navy submarine, the Springfield. The article features a Marine's Valentine's Sweetheart contest. Each year, Marines submit their significant others, but the 1963 winner was a bit unorthodox. The committee chose Paulette Abagnale. Yes, Roy entered his mother into a beauty contest and won. Who does that? Oedipus Complex, anyone? The article states that his mother, Paulette, grew up outside of Paris and attended university in Switzerland. This is not true. Paulette did not grow up outside of Paris. She was Algerian. And she didn't go to the university in Switzerland. She was 17 when she had Roy and moved to the U.S. And according to this article, Paulette was also painted by the great Norman Rockwell. This is most likely a lie, too, because there's no such proof that this painting even exists. It seems Roy, much like his younger brother Frank, has a very active imagination. We also discovered that later on in life, Roy had a son. Did Heather know that she could possibly have a half-sibling out there? We got back on the phone with Heather to talk about some of this new information. Heather also invited her mom, Susan, to help fill in some of the gaps. Oh, and by the way, Susan and Roy were married from 1970 yes. to 1978. Yes. We were working in a residential treatment center for boys. He was already there when I got the job. Roy was an established therapist at the counseling center. Susan didn't know this at the time, but he was working there with a phony degree. He was not even a licensed psychologist. And he was terminated when they discovered that. He had probably been there like 15 years. And, and then there was a change in management and he had a new supervisor and when the supervisor came in, he checked on everybody's histories, and, and that's when it came up and he got fired. She must have been floored to discover that the man she married was a fraud. I, I was devastated, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you question everything, everything about everything. <laughs> Susan felt violated and cheated. If he's lying about this, then what else is he making up? I had an operation and his mother came to stay with me. His mother being Paulette Abagnale, Frank's mom. We were talking and, and all of a sudden she was, you know, talking about the past and this and that and a whole lot of facts that he had told me about his life, where he was born, what his name was, were, <laughs> were not true. And that, that was really the big turning point. Susan, you knew him as John Paul, right? Yes, yes. But that was not his name. He made that up. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, that's what I always called him. And um, his mother always called him Roy, but I thought that was just his nickname for, for her, you know. But that was actually his real name. I asked Susan and Heather if they knew that Roy had a child. And as it turns out, they already knew this. The boy's name was Jean Paul Jr. Heather told me that her brother had very little contact with their dad until he became an adult. 
She said that her half-brother had extensive behavioral problems as a child, and she always thought it was strange that her father considered himself this brilliant behavioralist with children, but had no interest in addressing the issues of his own son. We talked more about this during our call. So, Mom, I was going to tell them the story, because it's so bizarre, of Jean-Paul and like his childhood and what happened with his mom, but I forgot about that piece when I was talking to Javi last time. And I feel like it, it's just so crazy. So do you want to tell them about that? I don't know if any of this is true, but what he told me was that she, it was an out of wedlock situation and, and she was not a good mother. She got him back somehow. And then he kidnapped her again. And he, That's right. Um, the mother of the kid kidnapped the boy from Roy and then Roy kidnapped the kid back. He, he never did raise him himself, even though he kidnapped him. And, but then he took, her, took him to her, his mother's house. She raised him. So I always thought that story was so strange because why would you kidnap a kid just to give him to your mother? Like he didn't even raise him. So it was very weird to no. me why, why he would do that. Yeah. The word kidnap is a strong word, right? And and was the, the child literally kidnapped I mean, in, in the way we're thinking about it? Yeah. I mean, that's that's how he coined it. We're talking about like kidnapping, but it also, it makes me think of that 1968 incident where the seven-year-old girl was taken to California. That was written in the newspaper as a kidnapping. And I know that, Susan, that that's way before your time with your ex-husband, but like, what, what can you tell us about that incident? It was a different story was that he was working at a mental hospital in Michigan, I believe. And he, um, there was a young gal there and he befriended this girl. Uh, and he was the only, she was very, very, very disturbed. And he was the only person in the whole hospital that she would communicate with. That was his story. I think it was the same girl, just different versions of the story. I, I didn't know anything about him taking her out of the hospital. The ironic part about this kidnapping story is that Ukiah, California is not far from Eureka, California, which is the same place where his brother Frank Abagnale Jr. was arrested three years earlier for stealing a yellow Mustang. I wonder what's in this part of Northern California that draws these brothers in. That's the missing piece of the puzzle. Susan also told me that this wasn't the first time Roy built a relationship with another one of his underage patients. And had befriended this little girl, and they got really close, and he was going to adopt her. But that never happened. And, you know, when we were married, I remember maybe once or twice he actually had contact with her on the telephone or maybe a letter. He talked about her a lot. So when you asked me about if I knew where he worked in Michigan, I did reach out to his wife after my mom, and she said that she has his resume somewhere, and she was going to dig it out for me. So that may help you get a timeline of, of places that he worked. Heather sent me a copy of her father's resume. Let's dive in. Right off the top, Roy writes... Over 20 years experience in child welfare, including residential care for at-risk and emotionally disturbed populations. 
And that part is true. He did work as a child therapist for a long time. But his entire career was based on bogus credentials. On his resume, there's a line where he developed a seminar with the wife of a famous Austrian psychologist. He was passing himself off as like a protege of this very famous psychologist and that that's where he kind of got his training with children with behavioral health issues and probably how he was able to kind of pad things to get the job at Berkshire Farm where my mom met him is that he was really passing himself off as like this child expert in children with like very severe mental health problems. The resume is also full of other made-up credentials. Roy claimed that he graduated from Pacific Northwest University. The problem is the Pacific Northwest University didn't even exist until 2005. Roy also claims that he earned an MBA from Canterbury College, which if you look up, it's a degree mill disguised to look like an accredited UK university. Roy Abagnale also claims that he worked in Togo, West Africa from 1983 to 1988 but I can't find the foundation that he mentioned anywhere on the internet. If this were true, then Roy would have been missing from the time his daughter Heather was four to the age of nine. Heather says that she thinks she would remember if her father were absent for five years of her life. So I think whatever scam he did at Berkshire Farm, he did again. It was called Pius 12. He worked there until he was too sick to work anymore. But I'm pretty sure he also worked there under false educational pretenses. He was he was let go from Pius also. Yes, he was also fired from Pius after one of the therapists he supervised supposedly inappropriately touched a woman. The incident made the local papers. Roy wasn't accused himself, but he was the director at the time, so he was out. All this makes me wonder, was he a well-respected professional in the field or, or by his peers? He was at Pius and he was at Berkshire Farm too, right, Mom? He was, he was pretty controversial, actually, but he had a, a kind of an avant-garde philosophy and it didn't sit well with the management always. He, he had conflict with his peers, but the kids adored him. And actually, it was, it was more positive and supportive and engaging, you know, which, which really attracted me to him because he was, you know, kind of bucking up against, you know, some pretty harsh treatments and things that, you know, ways that people thought kids should be treated. And he ran a cottage of, of boys and they adored him. Did you know that both Heather and her mother, Susan, are therapists? I wonder what they think is going on with these two brothers. I hate to play armchair psychologist, but I, I am talking to two mental health professionals. <laughs> this fascination with children, you know, it's easy to make assumptions of that there's something inappropriate happening with, with children. But at the same time, we're, we're also thinking, is this the case of these two boys who just didn't have a childhood? Like, are, do they have that Peter Pan syndrome where they were somehow robbed of their childhood. They grew up too fast. And maybe that's why they keep gravitating towards children. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think that what I see it consistent with them both is this desire for status and wealth. And I feel like that's been really like throughout my experience with my dad, he just always wanted to present himself as like 
a person of, of great means, you know, and I, I think it's the same with Frank. And I think that comes from childhood of, of not having means. And now it's like a super priority for both of them. Like how you look, how much money you have, how much you portray, how much money you have, that there's definitely an ideology there of, of like a worldview of really valuing money and status and fame. Would you agree, mom? Yeah, I do. And I think bucking the system is part of it too. You know, doing things that are illegal or grandiose. He did, didn't have to be liked by everybody. He didn't have that need, but he had a need to stand out in some way, uh, do things differently, you know, be the the protege of the most famous psychiatrist, things like that, you know. Again, there's a strange pattern between these two brothers. Both of them tried to join the military at age 16. Roy changed his name in order to do so. Frank didn't. And both have strange gravitational pull towards children. And both brothers made up bogus university degrees and resumes. Except only one of them decided to flaunt his outrageous lies in public. Frank Sr. was really affected by the success of his brother. And I feel like it's the same with my dad and his brother. Roy Abagnale was very successful. And I think Frank Sr. felt, you know, less than or that he didn't measure up. What Heather is suggesting is that maybe Frank Jr. was a copycat con artist, while his brother Roy actually pulled it off. I think that my dad was better at hiding things than Frank, or maybe my dad didn't want to be caught, but I just have a feeling my dad and Frank did some stuff. Or maybe my dad did stuff and Frank took credit, or there's just, there's too many coincidences. This is a man you married, you, you thought you knew him, and obviously now we've been recounting all the ways that you didn't know him, but like at the end of the day, though, when you look back, do you feel like you truly knew your ex-husband, Jean-Paul? Oh, no, I don't. I don't. Yeah, you know, it was, all, it was all made up. I mean, that's what was so devastating, you know, and many of those things, there was no reason for him to make it up. I think he... he wanted to live some kind of grandiose lifestyle. Did you know that one of history's greatest sibling rivalries was between magicians Harry Houdini and his younger brother Theodore Hardeen? The two magicians performed together before Houdini went solo. When young Harry saw his brother's straitjacket escape, Harry vowed to do the same trick, but this time hanging upside down. Despite the rivalry, some biographers believe that Harry Houdini really wanted his brother to be successful, but not too successful. In the case of the Abagnale brothers, Frank Abagnale Jr. was never a brilliant doctor, lawyer, or a professor. He was just a guy who passed off bad checks and robbed camera equipment from a kid's summer camp. On the other hand, his brother Roy faked his way into being a therapist and was respected by his peers. In the end, he pulled it off, while his brother Frank is still trying to prove his own worth. You know, this was a very challenging episode to put together because first, we devoted a lot of this episode to someone other than Frank Abagnale. It was a story of Roy slash Jean-Paul Abagnale, and it's important because these two brothers followed such similar paths. 
And this is tricky because we can't forget that Roy Abagnale was also Heather's father and she loved him. And Heather is in the middle of this right now trying to figure out the whole thing. She sent me this message after one of our chats. She said, something I forgot to tell you is that when my dad got really sick right before he died, he became obsessed with this idea of karma and talked about it all the time. Like maybe he was sick due to karma or something. I thought it was weird because I couldn't figure out what kind of bad karma he was referring to. It's really what prompted me to explore more because it just seemed so weird and out of step with the man I knew. Just figured I'd mention that. Something was tormenting him in the end. Unquote. That was Heather Abagnale, the daughter of Roy Abagnale, who was Frank Abagnale's older brother. What was tormenting Roy Abagnale? I can't help but wonder, does Frank Abagnale have similar ghosts? Next time on Pretend. In a previous episode, I mentioned that Frank Abagnale was getting an ethics award at Xavier University. And I asked my listeners, I said, hey, if anyone's going to be near Cincinnati and wants to ask Frank Abagnale why he's getting an ethics award, have at it, you know? And somebody took me up on that offer. Welcome to Cincinnati. Thank you. I don't believe the answer to this question. You, you dodged it pretty well, but your fame and your fortune has been pretty much built on stories that you've told that are all lies. I wonder in light of what the ethical award you're going to be presented tonight, Will you come truth and admit that you just lied to everybody and you're still conning them? I don't believe that's the case. If you thought my Las Vegas confrontation with Frank Abagnale was tense, wait till you hear how he reacts in front of a live audience when confronted with the truth. What a great way to end this series. You're going to love it. That's next time on our series finale of The Real Catch Me If You Can. By the way, I appreciate all of you following on social, spreading the word, everyone who's a Patreon supporter, who's making this story, independent journalism, a reality. I mean, you guys are fueling this operation. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough. You know, we covered a lot during these last seven episodes, but a lot of it is hard to follow. So I condensed all of Frank Abagnale's timeline into this short three-minute episode. It's jam-packed with his version of the story and what really happened. And we go age by age, year by year. It's really great. Also, you've heard me talk a lot about Alan Logan, the writer of The Greatest Hoax on Earth. Well, guess what? I finally interviewed him, and it was a two-hour conversation that I'm going to break it up and release it bit by bit on Patreon. Plus, I interviewed Pernilla, one of the women who brought down the Tinder swindler. And I talked to her about her thoughts on Frank Abagnale and how she would feel if the Tinder swindler were turned into a hit Broadway musical. It was an awesome conversation, and to listen to all these bonus episodes, go to pretendradio.org and look for the donate section. All right, we have one last episode, I hope. <laughs> um, follow me on Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram. My handle is at pretendpod. And I also want to thank Mark Meyer for editing this episode. He did a great job. Thanks for your help. I couldn't have done it without you. All right, till next time. Creative Babble.